Hey everyone, it's Peg Mulqueen with your latest episode of the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast. As Ashtanga's most familiar and easily recognizable couples, Tim Feldman and Kino McGregor couldn't be any more different. Kino, at barely five feet, definitely wears the pink shorts in the family. The youngest woman to receive certification to teach Ashtanga yoga, Kino just broke through another ceiling by receiving the first posture of fifth series just this month in Mysore. Kino has made it her personal mission to introduce as many students on a global level to the Ashtanga yoga method as she possibly can. Live, in print, or in video, it's safe to say Kino yoga reaches millions of students a day through books, blogs, videos, and of course, Instagram challenges. Then there's Tim, who Kino has affectionately dubbed the mayor of Mysore because of the way he always stops and talks to everyone. You're more likely to find Tim chatting up philosophy over coffee than writing it up in a blog. And most of his selfies involve either a motorcycle or Kino, though preferably both. Truth is, Tim didn't even realize the interview was being recorded, though it's doubtful even if he had, he would have changed a thing. You see, as an accomplished dancer and acclaimed choreographer, Tim knows a thing or two about performance. He just doesn't. He'd much prefer connecting with people and students personally and in a very real way, like in the Mysore room. So while Kino trots the globe spreading her message, Tim stays closer to home, teaching at Miami Life Center, the studio they founded together in 2006, and he now runs. But here's the thing I think you'll realize, as I did from this podcast, they are also very much the same. We chatted via FaceTime one early Saturday morning for them, late Friday evening for me, just after their practice in Mysore, India, with their teacher, Sharad Joyce. They are both passionate about living a spiritual life and sharing this message and themselves, whether it's on a screen or in the yoga room, with millions or simply over coffee, or even over a phone call that turns out to be a podcast. Meet one of Ashtanga's coolest couples, Tim Feldman and Keena McGregor. So I'm a little starstruck. <laughs> Is that terrible to admit? No. <laughs> Although, Tim, you know, you were the first person, the first, to yeah. ever call me a bad lady. Is that right? Yes, yes. Getting lots of that seems. Um, I've had a few, yeah. <laughs> but you also know that that is like an affectionate term in our line of, of work, right? I'm hoping so. Endearment? <laughs> yeah. So how is my sore right now? Um, it's Good. great to be here. Lots of people. We are in the early batch, which is which I... I think we don't like so much because we wake up at two in the morning, but it's maybe the best because it means that you don't, you know, people at the yeah. seven o'clock shift, they wait for an hour, an hour and a half before they get in. Oh, wow. And for kind of go straight in. So that's, it's kind of like. There's some benefits about practicing benefits. early, but. I cannot believe that I have the two of you together and it's what time? 
Uh, Over here it is uh, 615. 615. No. No. 645. 645. It's late. Have it on Shala time here. So uh, it's half an hour, 27 minutes ahead. Watching the two of you in your schedules and mm. knowing uh, that the two of you kind of do something that is pretty amazing. And that's that you hold a home base plus you mm. have a global following. Yeah, she's still like a little jealous about my Instagram amount of followers, but... I know. Work it, baby. You work it. You get there. <laughs> oh my gosh, you are funny. How did you guys meet? Short, do you want short version or long version? I want whatever version you'll tell me. Okay. This is the long version. This is the short version. The short version is we met in Trivandrum Airport on the way down to practice with Lino in the end of 2002 at Christmas. And we were at the luggage band and Kina, she walked over to me and she said, are you doing that uh, yoga thing? And I said, yes. And I said, I said, your first time here? She said, yes. I said, follow me, baby. I know everything about <laughs> well, Not that, but something like that. I said, I know where to get a taxi. And yeah, get... and I said, do you want to share a taxi? And we shared a taxi, and we were in one of these old Indian ambassadors, which looks like Persian nightclub inside. And uh, that was when the disco bell started ringing. <laughs> no? Yeah. I like this version. How long ago was that? Uh, that is uh, four, that's 12 years ago. Wow. We've been together fucking 12 years, man. Yeah, well, we went together right away. Uh, then we had half, then we we made that, and then we, we didn't see each other for half a year, and then we have been together since. But Wow. And like I said, the two of you seem to be, to me, so different. Yeah. Yeah, I think we. Yes. Like Tim likes home remodeling a lot. And I like to comb my hair. <laughs> and you're not at all funny. Oh my gosh. So, how does it work though? I'm going to tell you, we, I was talking to uh, David and Stan, and they were talking about. Um, David was actually saying that he can't imagine um, having a partner who wasn't an Ashtangi. Um, mm. And that you know, that kind of makes some of the crazy stuff, hours that you keep and those sorts of things understandable. On the other hand, I wonder how you do it having the two of you. I mean, it seems like your lives are so busy that it must be so hard, you know, to be in different places a lot and trying to juggle studio and, and you know, Instagram and travel schedules and all of that stuff. The hardest thing, I would say the hardest thing was when we were trying to do everything together and we were, and we we're trying to like come to consensus on every single decision and that sort of thing. Yeah. I think the most difficult. Um, and since I think that was a big, uh, probably learning process for us. And I mean, at least it was for me. Um, uh, and I imagine also for our relationship just to understand that like, um, you know, that it's good for us to have our own sort of areas of, autonomy and areas where we're not 
needing to, like, again, come to consensus to just move a little bit forward and make decisions. So to have those distinct areas, I think, is really important, or has been for us. I think when we opened up Miami Life Center together, when I moved to Miami, <clears throat> the first five years we ran it together. We founded it originally together with Greg Nardi, and then after three years about, he left. And then, um, but those five years we ran it together, and I think what we realized was that we want very different things from this. We're working this whole yogic paradigm very different. I think it would be fair to say that Kino is more interested in a mainstream approach. And I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Kino, like Kino's genius lies in that she is able and willing to um, implement mainstream mechanics into this ancient uh, form of spiritual conquest. And I think I am not as interested in that at all. Um, coming from a, a background in the arts, I never really enjoyed so much even these promotional um, periods we had to go through. So coming to yoga, I was not interested in that. And I think we clashed, we banged head on that for a while. And then after five years, uh, um, then I left Miami Life Center for two years and Kino ran it and uh, didn't have to ask me like, oh, can we, you know, can we sell uh, pink shorts in the yoga shop, you know, and stuff like that. And then um, Kino got, in the meantime, got so really, really busy and her Kino yoga was really, really kicking off. So then it made, it made more sense for her to focus on that. And um, she was trying to figure out what the heck to do with my life. And I thought, well, maybe this is interesting for me to come back and take a look at that and kind of recreate what I had always wanted it to be. So I teamed up with my friend Matt Tashian and we have then been running it the last year and a half with pretty much without Kino. Um, Kino is just on the poster. Um, so now we're doing like a very strict Ashtanga focused traditional approach down there, I would say. And Kino instead is conquering the world <laughs> via one Instagram post at the time. <laughs> you both come at it from some different angles, but give each other space to have both because there's a place for both, right? I think that was one of, one of our clashing point originally. Kino, she had an ambition to reach a million people was one of her goals. And when you set a goal like that, you uh, move in some particular strategies. And I did not have a goal of a million people. So my strategies were very different. Mm. So that was like, so as when we were running the, the yoga center together, Miami Light Center together, that was like, we were clap, we button heads on that a lot, mm. actually. But we are not no more. No. Well, I create, at some moment I created um, a separate company. So this is the Kino Yoga is incorporated separately from Miami Life Center. So to create sort of a clear division and a clear intention behind those two. And I definitely believe that the, like that Tim's doing an amazing job at Miami Life Center and creating like the intimate space where the daily practice of Ashtanga Yoga is really supported. 
Um, but from my perspective, it's not that I'm not interested in that. I, I want to support that. And I mean, I, it amazing. And I believe that that's really the way that people should practice the Ashtanga yoga method. But for myself personally, what, what I would, what, what sort of inspires me is to be the inspiration for people to practice, whether they find Ashtanga yoga in Miami or whether they find another style of yoga or a spiritual path, or they take up meditation. I want to be the inspiration for people to discover, to discover themselves through some sort of spiritual practice and to really just have the strength to be nice all day and be a better person and sort of leave the world a more peaceful place. Well, I think that Ashtanga can be a little intimidating. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, most, I was intimidated for a long time. It cracks me up because I just posted Tim's uh, article on elephant journal, like two years ago, you were talking about how it's a mistaken concept to think that practice brings joy, that it brings (laughs) something often quite opposite. Um, and then I compare that with Kino, your approach, and, you know, it's all about, you're, you know, you're smiling, you're, you're, you know, fun, love, you make the practice seem like it's a playground almost, like so inviting, like it's just so fun. And I was thinking about the two together and I'm like, boy, you're the one who lures them in, <laughs> Kino. <laughs> and Tim, you're the one who... <laughs> Go. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> then you show them the truth. <laughs> I think that we actually pretty much share perspective about what this is about because it's very defined. Yoga is a very defined modality. Like Patanjali has set forward his thesis very clear about when it's yoga and when it's not yoga. And the question is, you know, what part of this journey we latch onto, and in the West sometimes it's being portrayed as this, you know, instant happiness uh, elixir, you know, nectar. Yeah. And that is way too new age for me. I I come from Scandinavia, you know, and if something is really awesome, then we would say, oh. That's not too bad, you know. <laughs> so I think I come in from that side, and I will, um, where people will say, "Yes, you can, you can redo your whole life and be happy with this." I would say, "Yeah, Ashtanga Yoga can um, create solid meaningfulness and fulfillment in your life, but it's a different kind of happiness than, hey, Disney World." Do you know what I mean? I just don't. See that as true, and I don't think you do either. Yeah, I, I, for me, what I, what I come into contact with is the misconception of what yoga is, and this is something that um, I think is really important again to define. As Tim said, that the yoga methodology is quite clear in terms of the way that it works. Like it, it is a path to joy and it is a path to happiness, but it is not like the snap of the fingers. It's the it's the path of the removal of obstacles. And it's the path of, you know, of, of, of surrender, really. But surrender only happens if you completely accept the discipline and you completely accept the parameters of that surrender, um, you know. And it's a practice that you have to, it's an effortful practice. You have to show up on your mat every day. And one of the things that is important for me is that 
when, you know, when I share, like when I share an image and I'm smiling, I never used to smile in yoga pictures, you know, like a long, like a long time ago. Some, someone took a picture, some pictures of me on my first trip to my, on my second trip to Mysore. And I was not smiling. I looked back at those and I was like, wow, you know, there's a change in it. The change is like, you know, practicing for 15 years. The change is practicing and then experiencing, you know, what the, the yoga sutras say in sort of in book two, after they talk about all the suffering, you know, book two is like, of Patanjali's Yoga Sutras is so much about suffering. It's like, this is how you'll suffer. This is why you'll suffer. This is why you'll never escape suffering. This is where your suffering comes from. This is how it feels like when you suffer. It's like the book of suffering. And then there's one sutra that kind of comes out, and then it says, Sukha Salmana Syaikagriyendriya Yogyadvanitra. I'm missing some line. Jayatma. Uh, this is the line that I'm missing. So anyhow, what the t- it says in English anyway, that the, the yogi's mind, after many years of practice, displays these qualities. Sukha, the, the experience of joy and pleasure and happiness. Salmanasya, which is the opposite of Dharmanasya, which is what you experience in the midst of obstacles. Salmanasya is literally the cheerful attitude, is a cheerful, happy disposition. And I always think of Guruji when I think about that. Salmanasya. Um, Ekagriendriya, the ability to keep your mind single-pointed, the ability to control the senses, uh, the ability to experience the Atman, the true self. Uh, inside. So this is like, this is Patanjali's Yoga Sutra saying, hey, if you commit yourself to the practice, this is what it feels like. So that's kind of the, the, the message that I want to share with the world that, you know, you can be happy and you can be joyful far beyond any of the joy of the temporal world, far beyond the joy of the pure attraction to the senses and the sense objects. You can be happy um, from the deepest level where it really counts. And for me, that's about experiencing God through the practice and experiencing divinity through the practice and being able to have a real world experience of that, which then, again, is Patanjali's Yoga Sutra say in the presence of that in the presence of that divinity the obstacles are, are, are removed the obstacles are lessened so that you can experience your natural state of happiness your natural state of joy but i think if i just might break in i think that the, the 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 key is that the joy he's talking about is not the joy that we get from having um, promiscuous sex or from having uh, you know, a new type of uh, green juice in a more fanciful bottle or um, a new car or a new yoga mat. That is not what he's talking about. It's not that kind of joy. It's a deeper sense of joy. It's the yeah. joy where when the, the I want uh, succeeds and there is no more struggle, there's no more friction between what I want and what I've got. Uh, I, I, it's, that, it's that deeper sense of more ambitious type of joy and happiness that uh, Patanjali promises us through this. So I and I feel that the way that joy and happiness is used in in New Age and in yogic uh, America is uh, a false promise. In my opinion, or some, not always, but sometimes, sometimes used. Like, yay, I'm doing yoga. You know, it's like, yay, now yeah. I'm so happy. Like that article that you were just talking about, that, yeah. that's about that. It's like, no, no, that not that kind of joy. It's different kind of joy. Yeah, but, I, I, I don't think everybody. I just mean, I don't mean, I don't think everybody thinks that. 
No, I'm just talking about Patanjali. Yeah. I'm just talking about what he sets out to do for us. So if, if we go out and says yoga gives us something else and that, then yeah, we can say that, but then we're in trouble with Patanjali because he says no. Right. Right? For sure. But so I do I, just, I feel like in the practice, every time I hit a place where I feel good, happy, whatever, it's like it ups the ante and takes away whatever <laughs> Or, or or puts the obstacle back in my practice. And do you think we all, I mean, I feel like I like run up with the same few obstacles all the time, right? It's like, for me, it's always fear and insecurity. Just when I think I'm feeling a little bit of confidence and easygoing steadiness, like boom, there it goes right there in my face again. And I'm back to being scared and... <laughs> insecure do you think that's built into the practice is that everybody just or is that just i really need 15 more years i think maybe that i don't know what you say but i think that maybe the problem is that we 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 want to feel secure and safe and with a with strong self self-esteem we want that and then when we feel insecure and vulnerable and um, uncertain, then we want to get rid of that. That is the problem, I think. And I think that what we need to do is we, we need to start to take a look at the fact that that's never going to go away. That this is, this is part of our, our life. You know, the Buddhists, they have this beautiful tradition where they make the most elaborate mandalas made of 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 uh, small dust and small stones and in all kind of colors and they make this whole thing and they spend a month on it uh, five people and then when it's finished they leave it to the wind and then it just disappears so like and it's like they're building this incredible piece of art and then they just let it break down by itself and I think it, it's that same principle that we want this beauty to lead to and pleasure to lead our lives. And when we don't feel that, we think something is wrong. Nothing is wrong. <laughs> we just have, like someone has promised us some shit. I don't think it's actually like a specific person that's held that promise out there. It's more like a cultural mm -hmm. ethos. So, you know, so it's not like, okay, well, this person says that or this person says that. It's like the classic idea of the American dream, right? So then there's this idea of, okay, you have the house and the white picket fence and the job and the pension and the dog and the kids, right? And then, so that's the American dream and that's supposed to equal happiness. But what so many people are finding in the United States, I mean, that's happened already in the past is that there's this grand disillusionment about, about the ability to attain permanent happiness in the attainment of material pleasure, right? And so it's this sort of disillusionment factor, which is why people are turning to yoga, because they're, they're suffering when they have the perfect house, and they have the kids, and they have the picket fence, and they have the job, and they have the dog, and they wake up every day, and they feel unhappy. And they're, they don't understand. And their bank account's growing, but their heart's feeling more and more empty. So it's this idea, sort of, as Tim was saying, that, that whatever promise, whatever external goal that you're working towards, whether it's a material goal or whether it's the idea of saying, I should feel self-confident and I'll feel self-confident when I've clicked off all these boxes, any of these things are outside of the deeper sense of who you are. So the real purpose of yoga is to... I, this is what I was saying in, before about surrender. And I feel like 
this is, if you're truly surrendered, then it's, you know, you wake up one morning and, you know, you put the same insecurity that you've had for your whole life. And instead of fighting it, you accept it. Instead of saying, oh, this shouldn't be there. Instead of creating antagonism towards it, creating an aversion towards it, which is one of the obstacles, you simply observe it and you say, okay, so anxiety and insecurity are here today. Okay, I'm going to get up. I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do my practice. I'm going to do my thing. You wake up the next morning. Oh, anxiety and insecurity are still there. And you're not bothered by it. You just accept it. Oh, I'm going to go to work. I'm going to do my thing. And the next morning you wake up. Oh, security and happiness are there. Interesting. And then you just go through your day. So it's the equanimous mind that's the surrendered mind. And this is something that um, I, I just think is so important is, um, you know, to cultivate this moderately dispassionate attitude towards whatever is your sensory experience that you can be free from it. I think uh, Pema that, that, that is part of the method, right? Absolutely. That is part of the method. Pema Chodron is one of my biggest inspirations. I mean, I've never studied with her, which is a big inspiration for me. Someone asked her about her experience of meditation. She said something like, yeah, you know, when I started meditating, I would sit there and I would feel sort of um, distracted and anxious and unhappy. And now, you know, 30 years later, I sit there and I feel distracted and anxious and unhappy. I'm just not bothered about it anymore. Right? That's awesome. That's awesome. Because in the West... It's like in the pyramid of needs, we've come so high. So when two Western people meet each other, one says to the other, hey, how are you doing? How do you feel? And the other person is like, yeah, you know, and they will start talking about that. Feelings. If, if you take that in down here to India and you ask like the local Indian guy, hey, how are you? He will look at you like he has no fucking idea what you're talking about. <laughs> down here, when, two, when, when the local people meet each other, they say, have you had your lunch? Yeah. It's like it's a very different step on the pyramid of needs there. Right. So I'm like, I, I had my lunch. Oh, that's a good day. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Where in, in, in America and in Europe, it's like, how are you? Oh, I feel a little bit sad because I couldn't buy new jeans today. Yeah. The shop was closed. My partner didn't make my coffee this morning. Yes. Yeah. My favorite coffee shop closed. Yeah. Yes. I don't know. You know what I mean? I do. I do. Those, we greet in India the way we greet in the West. I think they say a whole bunch. Which it, which I think makes the appropriateness of spiritual practice quite quite relevant for Westerners. You know, because mm. if you're in a place where all of your material needs are met and you're basically like you know you're good you know you have the space to question you know how do i feel and mm-hmm. is this right action and you're questioning these things and this is the this is sort of evidence that you have the time and the space to contemplate spiritual practice if you're worrying about you know whether or not you're going to eat lunch that day then that in and of itself is is your battle like that's your mm-hmm. test you, you know but if your material concerns are all met and, and you're not happy, then then the appropriateness of spiritual practice, I believe, becomes to it, it, you know, sort of needs to um, you know be present. I got an email today from a student, and I was wondering how you would respond because it kind of goes along with what we've been just talking about. Um, she was injured, and and this is not like I said, it's pretty common for students that she said, "I have all these emotions that." arise every time there's a little bit of pain in my practice. One is shame. Like I feel ashamed. I should be, you know, I've been doing this for a while. I should not be hurting myself. The second part she goes into is fear. 
and says, then I get scared. Am I damaging my body? Am I doing something wrong? And I'm going to hurt myself. And then three, I just want to quit. And I really wanted to quit today. And she wrote that these were the dragons that I met on my mat today. I understand. I mean, her email, how would you respond to that? When I go to India, I study down here. I dig, dig a little deeper in the phil philosophy. So I tend to get obsessed with that when I'm here in India. <clears throat> and I am at the moment. And if I might take this from a kind of yogic perspective, the problem is the misidentification. She said, I'm afraid when my body is in pain. I'm, sh I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed when I feel injured. Um, and then I just want to quit. The thing is, she has whole, her whole identification of self lying around how she feels, what she thinks, and how her body is responding to her in her life. And she has, she has not come to the place yet where she is feeling that I am the observer of all this. And that's where my stability lies. And if she could um, reside there a little bit more, she would just say, she, she would, it would be lighter, all these problems. And she would see that all these problems are her possibility to gain knowledge, to gain experience, which is it, which it's all about. Whether they feel good or whether they don't feel so good. And right now she resists anything which doesn't feel good. So she is caught in the ragadvesha, in the attachment and the desire uh, there. And she's caught there. And if, if she has like a, a, a decent yoga teacher, a good yoga teacher like yourself, then, then we can maybe hope that she can start to understand that there's another way of thinking about this. That, we, that if we tell her, you know what, observe your mind and, and take a look at what's going on inside because your body gives you this tool to see who you really are and how you think. Then maybe she can start to get the, the um, uh, trust and faith that we're not just doing lip service. But we actually mean that shit when we say that, that we, we go through that, you know, uh, that that's what it's about. And, and there is happiness, right? There is that potential in that situation without even changing her knee and her injury or anything. There's potential for happiness. If she can do what Pema Children does, she goes in and she feels pain and shame and all that. And she just recites it and she observes. She goes, look at that stuff that's happening in my movie here. I mean, I think that the basic thing is that, um, like every, everything that you're saying, you have, you have, you have direct experience of what it takes to like show up. Mm -hmm on that for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. So it's not like you're speaking abstractly. Like, and now you said mm -hmm. you're basing in philosophy, but you've gone through something like that. Oh, and yeah. I, yeah. And I, I, think something, I think something that's really important for people, like when they experience, like she called them dragons, right? And so immediately you can probably see she's got the perspective of fighting. So she's like, right, mm -hmm. what do you do with dragons? You conquer them, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's like, no, what do you do with dragons when you meet them on your yoga mat? You befriend them, you know? Mm -hmm. And you, you say like, okay, well, so you're here today. These dragons were visiting and they breathed fire on me and they tried to kill me. But if your faith is strong, they won't kill you. You know, the fire will only purify you. It'll only mm -hmm. remove obstacles. So let them be there. Okay, so they're there. Good and then you just don't fight them. You drop the need to fight and you drop the war, right? Because 
it's our small, it's our, and, and that's like, I feel like the biggest life lesson that can come from the path of yoga, because how many times do we go out into the world, like someone says something mean to us, right? And we're like, ooh, you're a dragon. You shouldn't have said that. Let me show you what's right. You can make this little war with them, or I'm going to get you back. Or you try to extract vengeance from them, this sort of thing. You make your little wars. People launch, launch emotional missiles towards each other. One's launching towards you, and then you fire one back, and then you create these little wars. And I just feel like if you're yogis, we owe it to our commitment to the spiritual path to make our commitment to to be peaceful and to, to you know to drop the war to drop to to stop trying to annihilate the source of our suffering because the source of our suffering is within ourselves not outside you know and then the the, the we, we, there's a meditation teaching that kind of says like hey there's there's an infinite amount of squeaking things and sounds in every room that you could rather do without. In every body. Yeah, seriously, in every body, in every room. Yeah. <laughs> and if you spend your life trying to annihilate and eradicate every squeaking, annoying sound, you will never win. Mm. It will be a lifelong battle and you will fail. So just let them be there. You know, some things you can remove easily and let, the, let them be there. It's like trying to make quiet in India. It's impossible. This is actually great. It's actually great for me um, to hear. This has been, you know, I, I have recently just gotten a little bit more time getting a little older. Okay. So I, and I'm getting a little tired and I just noticed it in the past six months, like uh, just a, a an easing off for me. And there was a little bit of panic in me, like, oh my gosh, like this is it. This is that moment everybody talks about where you go backwards. It, it's been hard. I don't have any experience with not moving forward, going forward, being stronger. I don't know how to take that step back. Well, I can tell you I'm 48 now. And when I was 25, I was a young dancer and I had not really been had any injuries. And then I fell off a mountain and I broke my body and, and I was told I wouldn't walk, run and dance and stuff like that again. And then after two years of rehabilitation, I was back performing again and um, still had stuff going on in my body. And then during that time, I found yoga and then I started to do yoga and then I started to get passionate about yoga and then I messed my back up. Um, and then uh, I came to, I've been practicing here in Mysore maybe five years with a back injury where I was back and forth and back and forth. And now, knock on wood, here the last year too, my body has been really awesome. You know, I don't have any knee stuff going on, don't have any back stuff going on the moment. So suddenly I'm like, whoa, what happened to this young man's body suddenly that came inside? Um, and let's see how long time that's going on, right? I'm... I'm moving on 50, so it's like borrowed time. Uh, what is it like? I, I love what's his name, um, Leonard Cohen. He says, uh, and now something, your little winning streak, you know, and uh, and you're back on Boogie Street, and at, at there's a moment for the invincible defeat. You know, there's just no way you're going to go there. You know, it's just matter of freaking time until you can't drop back anymore until you can't jump through anymore until you can't tie that leg there anymore but I think that uh, a practice matures when we start not to go forward when we keep going forward it's just great fun and it's just like yay 
And when we start to not be able to go forward, but we have to go back, we have to pick up the pieces, that's when a practice matures. That's when a practitioner gets seasoned. That's when, you know, the pizza starts to taste of something. That, that, so I think you uh, couldn't be any better. It's just not so much fun. Just <laughs> right. But the fact is that the information we extract from joyful moments are so much less most of the time than the information, information that we extract from difficult moments. Because when we are in good yeah. moments, we just go, yay! Yeah. And when we're in difficult moments, we go, why is this going on with me? Why could I do? What can I do? And we read books and we go to doctors and we speak to our friends and we go back to our parents and we say, I'm sorry for the way I treated you 25 years ago. You know, we do all these kind of things. So there's, in that in crunchy moments, man, there's some information there to, to extract. So, hey, I would be happy about it. <laughs> you know. Yay! was talking about, you know, the dispassion as a way to happiness. Like I'm reading Sankhya at the moment and they make it very clear that dispassion is one of the most important things in the path towards emancipation. But there is no emancipation in, um, uh, in dispassion, in, in uh, non-attachment. Emancipation comes through knowledge. Basta! You know? <laughs> Like, so like when, like we, we need to move towards gaining knowledge, gaining knowledge and being in a difficult time is a natural knowledge catcher. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. I wish that weren't so, I won't lie, I, but I know that that's also part of what I hear you guys both saying collectively and that is just observe it. It is what it is today and... Yeah, cultivate the equanimous mind. It's for yourself personally. If you don't have a meditation practice, meditation is probably the, the single most effective way that I've experienced to cultivate the equanimous mind. And that's something that I feel can put the perspective on asana um, just so much deeper because, like Tim was saying, if it's knowledge that creates emancipation or knowledge that creates freedom, knowledge of what? And what creates the space for knowledge? If you're too identified with your own personal suffering, then there's no space for the higher knowledge to seep in. How can you experience God directly when you're so caught up in whether your big toe hurts or not? Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So that's the sort of level that your thoughts are attracted towards, you know, um, then you won't be open to the higher knowledge. Or if you're too attached to the other your feelings, your personality, your possessions, the sort of thing, then when the surrender moment comes for you to jump in and, and have this uh, sort of leap of faith experience where you directly experience the highest truth, the highest knowledge, then you won't be able to take that jump. I think that the whole asana practice really is just about preparing you for that surrender moment, for that moment of direct perception of the highest truth, of that knowledge, so that everything we experience along the path is really just preparation for that. Yeah, that surrender thing is kind of hard. I think that's when uh, Tim may have called me a bad lady. I'm pretty sure that was it. <laughs> I hope so. It was. I think India itself is one of the greatest teachers. Like they say about India, like if you don't have patience, India will give you patience. And if you have patience, India will break it. <laughs> so, for, you know. Or you like, for example, like the other day, our our landlord he came over and he did a wonderful thing. He gave us a battery pack, which is like a backup for when the power. Goes.
about. But he managed to turn off our pump, which supplies water. So we ran out of water at 2 a.m. when we were trying to take showers and for practice and whatnot. So, you know what I mean? Like, as a Westerner, like, when your water just, it just doesn't go off. Like, we don't have power cuts. We don't have water cuts. We don't have that. And, like, that's – you cannot control that. Like, if, if it's a city – I was in Mysore once where there was a city water cut for two weeks – you cannot control that. There's no one you can call. There's nothing you can do. There's no 1-800 number. There's no complaint form. You just take it, which is like, you don't do that. In the United States, you if, can hear that she's brought up in the suburbs, right? <laughs> like everything is there. There's a car. There's it's a liquid. water cut for two it's, weeks. <laughs> um, there's no, no such thing as fuel gear. You know, there's a... So, 7-Eleven I mean, on every corner and a Starbucks. Yeah. For the average American princess, I think that going to India and, like, suffering through things is a really important thing because there's so many, like, so many people take it for granted, you know, like, oh, it's, you know, come here and then they complain. I'm like, no, it's not about that. You come and you you surrender. So you teach yourself, like, you, you're forced to surrender into things. We're not, like, voluntary surrendering people. You know what I mean? Like, if we can have, uh, like, the juice that we want and the food that we want and the house that we want and this, if we can, if we we can control it all we will so i think it's so important some people ask like why should i go to mysore guruji's not alive anymore i feel like you should just go to india itself because i mean strata is amazing i recommend everyone to come and practice the shala here for sure it's an amazing experience you can't get anywhere else in the world but half of the trip is about coming to india and just you know oh the power cut can't do anything about it oh water cut you know oh this didn't happen oh there's a cow in the middle of the road we have to go around it so there's all these things that really just like create this experience of non-attachment because you can't change it. And there's no, again, there's no one you can call. There's no 1-800 number. There's no complaint form. There's no customer service agent. There's no one that's going to save you. There's no, nothing you can do. You know, I remember one time I came back from, um, India and two things. First of all, when I came into the United States, I was trying to check myself in at one of these kiosks and it didn't, like the kiosk was broken. And then the, the customs officer was like, I said, the kiosk is broken. And he took my passport and he said, you have to, there's a 1-800 number you have to call. And I was like, oh, welcome to the United States. When there's a problem, 1-800, fix me, you know? And I felt like, well, now I'm home. And then I went out and I turned, you know, the, the this experience of like just turning the water on and everything works. It's like, I'd never appreciated that before. And I feel like that's a huge lesson. There's so many like we take every me myself, I'm a big like take it for granted person. You know, take it for granted, but it's like it's all these small things. You appreciate it. Everything is a gift from God. Every moment, like the fact that there's hot water, the fact that there's internet, the fact that we can see each other. This was like the Jetsons, like you know, 20 years ago. It was like a future prediction. The fact that you know we we have each other, we have love, we share all of these little moments of appreciation. I feel like. It's so easy to take it all for granted, especially if you're raised like in a life of privilege where everything's taken care of and there's a social safety net. And if it's not the social safety net, you go back and live with your parents or there's always something to catch you and it's just, you take it for granted. But the experience of going to India, practicing here, and then returning into this life that you took for granted, it just casts it in a whole new perspective so that you can appreciate every little gift that you've received and you understand how special it is and you never take it for granted again. Never. You know, you really are good, Kino. I just have to say that you just made having no running water and <laughs> and no control sound incredibly awesome. <laughs> I think it's really gracious that the both of you have taken this time out of your morning, you know, between conference and practice um, to talk to me, but also that you share so much of yourself. Uh, both of you in your own way share so much of yourself with so many people. Um, 
to be that vulnerable and to be that open is hard. I don't know if we could do it any different. Uh, maybe I should speak for myself. I think part of this whole uh, paradigm of yoga is that you walk the walk, you know, and, and there's a transparency and an honesty that if that is not uh, in place, then it doesn't make any sense and it doesn't have any power. It's like writing out a check to a bank account that doesn't exist. You know, that just doesn't make any sense. If you have money in the bank, you can write the check and everyone will honor the check. If you do not have any money in your bank account, they will just laugh at you. Mm. You think that with a smirky smile. <laughs> but um, but I, I, I don't know, on a more, like, on a more like, practical level, I think that Tim is an extremely friendly person. Like, I think that he's, he's, he's really talkative and friendly, and as long as nothing's wrong. Oh, and, oh, the only way you can tell if Tim is upset is, or, or if he, or, or, or yeah, if you're upset about something, it, then he doesn't have anything to say. But as long as Tim is feeling good, he has a lot to say. He's actually quite talkative and everyone, and I'm joking with him because I'm calling him the mayor of Mysore because he talks to everyone. He kisses them. Hello. And then they look at me and I'm like, And, um, it's funny because like, I love, it's something, it's a, it's an aspect of Tim that I really, that I love about him. And I feel like I'm almost more comfortable, um, I don't know, like sharing myself in a, in a, in a public forum, in a formal or public way. So that, and then I'm an intensely private person so that like on the street, sometimes I don't want to say hi. I don't like, I'm not necessarily like, Oh, hi, like let's talk for 20 minutes now. I'm more like, Hey, and you know, I don't know, like, it takes me a while to, like, let a friendship in or something like that. Like, it, t it takes me a little bit longer to really open up to people like that, but in a teaching perspective or in, in, in a way where I believe that the sharing of myself is useful or has a purpose or something like that, then that's quite, that's quite easy for me. Um, and I find that the more that, I, like, the more open I am, the more, I, the more vulnerable I am, the more that I can connect with people. But it's an interesting sort of difference between us because I've learned definitely learned from Tim that there is, you know, um, like how to be available for people, um, just, you know, when you meet them and that sort of thing. Cause definitely, so, I mean, um, I do know for myself though, that I, like, I need to balance that, whether it's sharing publicly or meeting people on the street and talking to them or talking to students after practice, I need to balance that with quiet and solitude. And if I don't have that, then I get really, I don't know, I just get imbalanced and I get, outside of myself. So for me, that's an important balance to really keep. And I think it's something that people don't immediately know about me. They just assume because I smile and I make videos that I want to talk all day, but that's, um, you know, I'm not like that. I, I love silence. You know, I love quiet. Um, even between the two of us, Tim's the one that will put on music and I'm like, oh, music. Hmm. Okay. That happens once a month. <laughs> ah. Do you remember that thing called music? Yeah, and I'm like, oh, I, can we put on like peaceful classical music? Because like, I put on Johnny Cash, he's like, oh, oh, how about is that music? Yeah, exactly. Oh. And uh, Beethoven, Mozart. <laughs> hey, can I just say I also think that you know that there's a lot to aspire to in this. Uh, you know, it's it's. That's not, there's a, there's a never ending depth. There's a never ending next level in this thing. And 
And I feel that personally, I have met some really, really inspiring people, some people that really motivate me to try to be the best I can. And the whole paradigm of what we're doing is to show up in the part of ourselves that is about light and um, attempting to do good. It is not about the part of ourselves where we go, oh, fuck it. Like, it's not that part, and that happens sometimes, right? But, and I feel I met some people that are very inspiring in that way, and I feel that, that the text that we read that has been, um, that our um, work is based on, it shows us very clear, like, for instance, that uh, who do we seek advice from? From people who doesn't have a personal interest in the outcome. People that has only is only answering from the point of view that what they think could possibly benefit you. And I feel I meet people like that. And I read that kind of literature. And I have these kind of students in class that are there to try to do better for themselves or in general. And when we are around that attitude for a long time, it makes a mark. And it is very, it is inspiring to to live that. It inspires me to watch the two of you, how you give each other space to be who you are, um, to share the gifts that you have in the different ways that you do. Um, as a student, you know, in DC and who has known both of you in, in separate, you know, arenas, I've appreciated uh, what both of you have offered, even the bad lady. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but all of it and you know Kino I have learned so much from you online um there were times when I had no idea how to do something and you know as I would turn to you and a couple of times I wrote to you and said I have no idea and you were like here this is go to this look at this boom done and I was like whoa that's awesome um and yet, and Tim, I've had more one-on-one um, -on -one experiences with you in the yoga room. Um, and it's true. I, I mean, we, I'm laughing about the bad lady comment, but you were the first person who ever brought me to my heels <laughs> or ankles. And I... Happy you're not saying you're the first person that brought me to my knees. <laughs> Although I did feel like figuratively I dropped to them, but there was a level of almost immediate trust with you and yet of course fear in me which I said already always comes out but you took the time afterwards to talk to me about it and to process it with me and I'd never had that kind of reaction before in the yoga room of that uh I couldn't explain it it wasn't physical I you know backed away because I was scared and I hadn't had that kind of fear um, but you took time afterwards and talked to me about it and, and processed with me. And it was, it was uh, really meaningful. So both of you have had such an impact on my life in two different ways. And I've really appreciated it and have like appreciated both of you sharing yourself in the ways that you do, as different as they are. I feel Tim, that like your gift, one of your amazing gifts is, is, um, is, the, is, is teaching lifestyle style and physical adjustments. I feel that you create this amazing space of trust, like an immediate sense of trust. And physically, you're able to kind of work with the body beyond the physical body. 
and it's something that I don't think is, um, I, I, it's almost like this unteachable aspect, you know, so my guru just said, you know, no teacher training, because like, how do you teach someone that like intuitive gift that you have, that when you put your hands on their body, that you feel beyond their physical body, you know, you're feeling like the emotional body, you're feeling the energetic body, you're feeling all this stuff, it's almost like you're born with it or you don't have it, or maybe you can learn it by practicing with a teacher like that for many years. That's something that, you know, that you're truly gifted at, you know, physically, like anatomically super precise, but there's that space that, that Peggy mentioned that there's this instant trust. And trust is something that you feel in the body. It's not that you can't intellectually trust someone. It's like your body has to trust their body, right? Mm -hmm. So... Well, thank you, Kim. That's super sweet of you. Well, I, I truly believe in the power of asana. I think it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I and as you say, to as a vehicle, as a window, as a portal into something much deeper than than that. Right. So. Well, I won't keep either of you much longer. Thank you so much. Is there anything either at Miami Life Center or with you, Kino? Anything? Um, I mean, every month I'm posting Instagram challenges, which are kind of fun. And I think that the Ashtangis kind of like them because it's like permission to do asanas outside of the series. Right. And I've noticed that there are actually a lot of Ashtangis that take funny photos and it's like, again, it's like some sort of fun permission um, to, to go to that place where it's fun and it's not this discipline practice. So um, in March, I'm doing a handstand challenge. So that'll be kind of, you know, very outside of the domain of the Ashtanga police. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do March. I've not done one. It'll be fun. I mean, it's like you really were building up and it's like, you know, to teach the correct technique and everything like that. Um, and, you know, I, um, I host them with my friend Carrie and we're going to we're also having a series on Cody that's going to go along with it. That'll like give instruction a little bit more detail than what we've done before. So it's kind of a special and new one. I'm editing my second series book. Um, which is going to come out sometime this year. So I'm, I'm, I've got the typeset copy and I'm proofreading it while I'm here in my source. So that's kind of exciting. We are leading um, together a one month summer course in Miami in July. And then we're also leading a two week intensive in London, which is the first time we've ever done like a two week, a two week sort of like course outside of Miami. And then next year, a little less than a year from now, we're going to do the same two week things in Singapore. I hope you have a, a great rest of your time there in Mysore. Enjoy your time together. Thank you for taking the morning out. Thanks for having us on your show. Thank you both so much. Bye. Bye. Wow. It's clear that while most people around the world may know Kino via Instagram, that is just scratching the surface. There's an ocean of knowledge underneath. And as for Tim, take it from this bad lady. He's one teacher you will want to visit and study with. Not to mention, follow his quirkier posts on Facebook. He's hilarious. Truth, the two of them together have a lot of yogic wisdom to share. But after listening to them and watching them interact with each other, they also have a thing or two to share about what makes relationships work. It really touched my heart in the way they each support the other in pursuing their dreams and passions, even when those paths involve selfies and motorcycles. I hope you'll get the chance to visit Miami Life Center at some point. Not only does Tim and Kino offer various opportunities for study with them, they also have a whole team of gifted and passionate teachers. 
Visit MiamiLifeCenter.com to learn more. And of course, I hope you'll join Kino, and yes, me too, for March's Instagram challenge, hashtag journey to handstand. Check out KinoYoga.com to learn more about this and more about Kino. Thank you for tuning in today. And remember, our fun is just only beginning. So make sure you've subscribed to this podcast on iTunes. And certainly if you or someone you know would like to help sponsor future episodes, please let us know on ashtangadispatch.com. This podcast is the brainchild of our editor and producer, Chris Lucas, and hosted by me, Peg Mulkley. Thanks again. See you next time.